Welcome everyone to Soccer Made in Portland. I'm Jamie Goldberg. I'm here as always with Caitlin Murray. And we have uh, not the happiest uh, week of soccer for Timbers and Thorns fans, I, I think. Um, particularly on the Thorns side, I, I think we have a bit of a shocking game to talk about today. A historically uh, bad a historic- uh, week of soccer to talk about, yeah. Yeah, um, it, it was not great for either side. Uh, a little bit worse for the Thorns, but we are going to start with the Timbers and... Maybe with playoff implications, even even a little bit uh, worse for the Timbers uh, in the week. Uh, they fell one to nothing to DC United. I was being optimistic. I predicted a win. I predicted a one nothing win uh, with a Brian Fernandez goal, which Ooh. Brian Fernandez didn't play. As we'll get you into, struck out on that one, Jamie. <laughs> yeah, I struck out. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about Brian Fernandez. Um, you predicted a zero zero draw. I think we both. At least, I guess to give us any credit, had the idea that it would be a low-scoring game, mm. uh, correct? But that yeah. was about it. You said there would be some more iron front flags in the stands. We'll talk about that some more. I got that one. Work. You did. <laughs> but we'll get um, there. We'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah, our predictions are just, uh, I guess, um, our way of looking forward to the rest of the podcast because uh, <laughs> they, were, they weren't necessarily right, but they have stuff that But they did hit on important points that we yeah. do need to talk about for sure. Exactly. Um, But let's start with the game. And I got a version of this question from pretty much every other person that asked us a question. So uh, I'll I'll say that Greg, I'll I'll ask Greg's question, but everyone had something similar to this. And Greg says, what do you have to do to break down a parked bus? That is the question of the season, isn't it? If the Timbers had the answer, they'd be higher (laughs) up in the standings. Um, I mean, look, I think the first thing we have to acknowledge is that it is difficult to break down a team that bunkers. That's why teams do it, because it works. I mean, anyone who follows me knows that I follow the U.S. Women's National Team really closely. They're the best team in the world. They constantly face teams that bunker against them because it works. And the 2016 Olympics is a great example of that working successfully. Sweden knocked the U.S. out of the Olympics. So first we have to start there. Teams do it because it works, and it is not unique to the Timbers that it is difficult to break it down. That's by nature. That's what it's supposed to do. So in terms of Greg's question, how do you break that down? I mean, I think generally the goal is to pull the opposing team out of their defensive shape. And, I mean, we see it when teams have long stretches of possession. They circulate the ball around a lot, and they what they're trying to do is go the other team to come out, try to win the ball, and then exploit the gaps that are left there. I think we saw the Timbers a couple times against D.C. United do uh, quick give-and-go passes, quickly switching the point of attack. Those are things that can create space. The Timbers didn't do that nearly enough because the Timbers have seemed to settle on crossing the ball as their solution. They crossed the ball 39 times against DC United, which is a ton. And in fact, now the Timbers have the highest average crosses per game in the league right now. So, I mean, we've talked about this on the podcast before, I feel like I'm a broken record and people are sick of me saying it. I don't think that crosses are that effective. I just don't think that can be the only game plan that the Timbers have, especially because I don't think the Timbers are that threatening in the air. And when they just cross the ball constantly, that's what they're hoping to do is 
get goals in the air. And I actually looked this up right before we started recording, Jamie. The Timbers have the most attempts on goal from headers. And that makes sense because they also have the most uh, the most crosses on average of any team. I think what they should be doing is playing through Obobese. I think the few times that they did that, that was effective. But that's sort of my spiel. What do you think, Jamie? Yeah, I think I was going to point to the crosses too because I think they're – Timbers are really predictable right now when it comes to trying to break down bunkering teams. And like you said, it's not easy to do good teams. Even the U S women's national team, dominant (laughs) teams have games where they simply cannot break down a bunkering opponent. But this has been so, so consistently a problem for the Timbers that clearly at this point, they need to be looking for different solutions. And for whatever reason, it doesn't feel like they have. I think in some games they've had better results just because they find the first goal. And that kind of speaks to exactly what you said. I mean, once you find the first goal, the game state changes. It forces a team to maybe come out of their defensive bunker a little bit more Mm -hmm. and opens up the game a bit more. I think that's one of the reasons you see the Timbers do so well when scoring first and struggle so much when conceding the first goal. Uh, But in terms of the crosses, I just... I just don't know why they continue to to seem to use that as their main strategy. Like you said, when you think of players on the team that are going to score off headed goals, the Timbers don't have a ton of them, and they definitely don't have a ton of them in the attack. They have players like Dielna and Tui Loma, but you're not going to see those players up in the box unless it's on a free kick for the most part. And so across yeah. going trying to bring across into Valeri and maybe Abobasi may work every so often, but it's not going to be something that's going to be an effective solution game in and game out. So Yeah. I was surprised when I looked it up and the Timbers, on average, have the most headed attempts on goal of any yeah. team in the league. The team, by the way, that has the most headed goals in the league is the Galaxy, which makes perfect sense. Yeah. They have Zlatan. He's like a giant. He towers over everyone, so that makes sense. The Timbers don't have a Zlatan on their team. They don't have anyone like that. So for them to put all their eggs in this basket, crossing the ball and you know trying to head goals, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, they need a plan B. I think it's what we've been talking about all season long, and we still don't have a plan B yet. Yeah, I think the Timbers have been the most effective in the attack. When when you're seeing them, like you said, doing sort of these quick give-and-go passes, it's really kind of the team goals they're able to set up with the Bobas, with Bobasi, Fernandez, Blanco, Valeri, um, those players and others making quick passes around uh, within and around the box. I think that kind of touches on Doug's question, which uh, Doug's takeaway from the game is that it seemed like the Timbers were thinking too slowly in the 18 It seems like it's always one to two seconds too long. Do you get that sense from them right now? Sometimes we've definitely seen that the energy level from the Timbers is a little bit flat. And I, you know, every team goes through that. I thought that was the case on Sunday with the way they came out. I thought in the first half they did look a little flat. They picked it up in the second half, but it wasn't enough. I think if a team is just unable to move the ball quickly enough and find those passes, that to me suggests that it's more than just the energy level, that maybe the team is not as well drilled as it should be. Maybe the team chemistry isn't where it should be. And I think this is going to come up. Certainly, we're going to talk about the absences. I think that is a disruptive force. You know, 
the more that players get reps together, the more they can anticipate each other's movements and find each other. We've seen a lot of passes to nobody or passes to the other team from the Timbers when they do try to, you know, pick up the pace and combine and, you know, create those unlocking passes. So I think that could definitely be part of it. There is a concern that with five games in 15 days that the energy level needs to be there. They need to have better chemistry. They need to get rid of some of the sloppiness and the slowness that we've seen. But what do you think? Do you see that? Yeah, I I think you mentioned the five games in 15 days, and that's a real concern for me right now. We'll get into that a little bit more, but this team, I already feel like, like you said, the energy is not always there. I think it's disruptive to have uh, players that are injured, players coming in and out of the lineup. The chemistry can't be what you want it to be. When you look at the last five games, the Tibbers have scored four goals in the last five games. I think, at least for me, I point to that stretch as, as a very clear stretch where the attack has... Uh, just not been up to the level that we'd want to see out of the Timbers. The four goals that they scored during that stretch, uh, one was just a brilliant effort, individual effort by Valeri. One was a free kick that just deflected off the Sounders wall and went into the net. And the other two were were the two goals uh, against Kansas City when the Timbers had that comeback, where you say, those are great team goals. That's what I want to see this attack doing more often. Those Mm -hmm. are the combinations I want to see. And so... Seeing those goals against Kansas City, I think, gave me some hope that the Timbers have what it takes to get to the point they need to in the attack, but we just aren't seeing it consistently. We're not seeing that chemistry. We're not seeing that energy, and and the changes with the the lineup uh, can't help. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, well, we're going to talk about the absences, so I won't get ahead of us. Yeah, well, the other thing that I thought was interesting, and we both talked about it, uh, I think, in in the locker room or coming out of the locker room after the game, was that despite sort of, I think, this feeling that the attack wasn't what you wanted to see, the Timbers lost one to nothing. Or the defense, to be fair. Or the defense, yeah. Everything wasn't what you wanted to see, Or the defense, (laughs) the own goals. Um, Gio was pretty complimentary of his team's performance, and the players also talked about, you know, having out shooting the other team, uh, I believe it was something like 23 to seven uh, controlling 67 percent either. Yeah. Very yeah, close. They, they were rattling <laughs> off those stats. Yeah. And yeah, I said this right after uh, we were finished with uh, the press conference and talking to the players in the locker room. I completely disagree with yeah. that assessment. That was not a good game from the Timbers. Those stats don't matter. And if that's, what the Timbers are going to point to and say that was a good game, then there is just a difference of opinion. Because, look, we already talked about it. Crosses is an irrelevant stat. I think the number of crosses, 39, showed desperation, not domination. The Timbers had more possession, but that's because D.C. United ceded the possession to the Timbers. And the shots... They had 24 shots, I think it was. That is a useless stat if you aren't looking at the kinds of shots that the Timbers were taking. And the Timbers didn't have that many good shots. Because a better stat for shots is expected goals. And the Timbers' expected goals for that game was 0.8. They took 24 shots, but advanced metrics say they should have scored less than a goal in that game. And I do think their finishing let them down. They hit the post I think it was twice or they hit the post hit the crossbar whatever it was but I think just look at the shooting map look at where these shots were taken 
The vast majority of them were outside the penalty area, long-distance shots, and a goalkeeper of Bill Hamid's caliber was never going to have trouble stopping those shots. So they can point to all the stats that they want. I don't think it was a very good performance. What did you think, Jamie? Yeah, I think speaking to to what you were saying, what I counted was 12 of Portland's shots were from outside the 18-yard box, uh, and and they didn't have any shots within the six-yard box. They didn't have any close, uh, very close-range shots. Um, Yeah, I didn't think they challenged Bill Hamid at all. I, I remember turning to you asking, did, did Bill Hamid dive this game? Yeah, you I, I said, really... did he even touch the ground? Yeah, <laughs> and I, I'm not sure. I'd have to go back and watch the whole thing and try to count those actions. Maybe he did, but the, there weren't that many good opportunities. I think Valeri's header off the post in the first half was the best opportunity. The The team talked about hitting the post twice. The second time they hit the post was Jorge Marrera essentially mishitting a cross and almost pulling uh, what Failhopper did last week and, <laughs> right. and somehow sending into the goal. That wasn't a high probability shot that just missed. That was a misattempt that almost accidentally went in. So, yeah, I, I just looking at the performance, I mean, I feel like they played into DC United's hands. DC United was fine conceding possession. DC United was fine allowing the Timbers to get a low probability shots and didn't care if the stat sheet was going to look like that. And they ended up walking away with the win. So I, I'm not... I agree with you. I, I did not think this was a great performance. I was a little surprised to hear the team talking about it like that. Yeah. I think last year when, when Gio would have game plans that sort of were like this, like when they, the Timbers beat New York City FC, they conceded possession at home. Um, that was a game that everyone talked about being really well managed. And, and that was the kind of game where Gio said, yeah, that was our game plan. We wanted to concede possession. Uh, we dominated that game by executing what we had wanted to do, it didn't matter that the other team had more shots, had more possessions. So that's the yeah. kind of, now the, the script is, is sort of flipped and um, the Timbers need to recognize that it has to be a <laughs> lot better than what this is right now for them to be where they want in the standings. Yeah, now that you mentioned that, that definitely conjures up things uh, from Caleb Porter's time <laughs> with the Timbers where uh, I remember asking him about the Timbers being outshot in their previous few games and he would say shots didn't matter and then like a game later he would say they were the better team because they had more shots it's all uh you know I think it's in the interest of every coach to try to say that their team performed well and I can appreciate that I can understand that and I think at this point in the season you can't be too down about your performances you have to try to build confidence and get some momentum going that's fine I respect that but you and I are going to call it like it is. That wasn't a good game. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and speaking about what kind of game it was, uh, how, in my opinion, how poor it ended up being, I, I mean, the Timbers lose one nothing. Let's talk about it. I, I don't even think it should have been a one nothing loss. No. I think it should have been a 2 nothing loss. Um, DC United got their first goal on an own goal from Bill Tui-Loma in the first half. 13 minutes later... On a corner kick, Steve Clark goes up to try to catch the ball. It goes over his head, hits Eric Williamson, hits Clark's back. Uh, Clark's on the ground, hits his back, bounces back towards goal. Eric Williamson clears the ball at the goal line. And DC United raises their hand immediately to say it's over the goal line. Um, From our angle, we couldn't see it live, what what the situation is. We We were expecting a VAR review to happen, probably the referee to stop play, go to the side. 
That did not happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, from what the referee told the pool reporter, uh, essentially, VAR said that he didn't need to look at it. Um, what did you think of this? Because I'm sort of shocked that VAR didn't uh, see this as a potential for a clear and obvious error on the field. Yeah, I thought it was crazy. Why do we have VAR if they can't see that the ball has fully crossed the line and do something about it? I mean, I believe that the reason MLS does not have goal line technology is because they have VAR and they felt that video review would be able to handle these sorts of things. But ESPN showed a very clear video that showed the ball cross the line. I think some people were saying that that wasn't an official view that MLS was using. Well, MLS needs to get that view because what they did end up using was a still frame where Eric Williamson's foot had not even made contact with the ball. So they did not get the moment where the ball had went furthest across the line. So then my question is, can the MLS spring for some better cameras that have higher frame rates? Like, why is that the best image that they have? I mean, it made no sense. I think that if DC United lost points because of this, it would have been a huge deal. It didn't end up mattering. But it is sort of interesting that, you know, the Timbers have been on the wrong side of some calls. Here they get the benefit, and they don't capitalize on it. And this is an example of, it's not about the refereeing. The Timbers just need to play better because they got a lifeline here and they did not take advantage of it. Yeah, I mean, if, if the attack can't challenge the other goalkeeper, it doesn't matter if you concede one, two, three, uh, <laughs> four goals. I, I mean, yeah. you, if you can't score, you're not going to win. So, yeah, I, I agree. I don't know how VAR missed that. I don't know how there was at least not at least a review. Um, I, I think seeing that image that, that we believe is the image VAR has, it the ball, even in that image, looks like it may be over the line. It's very, very close. Mm-hmm. And you got to assume that one frame later, if your frame rate's what you want it to be, <laughs> you're going to see that little gap that shows it's over the line. So for sure, uh, that was, a, I think, a clear and obvious error. And um, for once, it went uh, for the Timbers. But um, DC United, if they had lost that game, would have had every reason to be very angry coming out of it. Yeah. I still hate VAR, but, you know, <laughs> I th- well, that's beside the point. I just wanted to get that in there. <laughs> I mean, apparently we should be looking at if we need goal line technology, because if VAR can't catch that, the most important thing that you'd want VAR to catch, whether something is a goal or not a goal, uh, that's a Yeah, there's problem. no gray area either. It's like yeah. the ball fully crossed the line or it didn't. So yeah. I fully support goal line technology, but from what I understand, it's actually pretty expensive. So... I think that's probably the barrier to entry for MLS is that it costs a lot of money to implement it, but I would support that. I think that would be the way to do it. Um, I think, you know, we've, we've talked about the game. We talked about the Timbers performance before we look ahead now and see if the Timbers can rebound from this result. Uh, let's just bring up really quickly. You mentioned earlier, you thought there'd be iron front flags in the stands. There were, uh, in fact, the Timbers army, they said in solidarity, in solidarity with other supporters groups that are, protesting MLS's ban against the Iron Front symbol um, and, and are getting different reactions than, than I think the Timbers Army has, at least in terms of not even being able to wear things on their shirts and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, they decided to remain silent for the first three minutes and 30 seconds of the game. Um, I think that was that it was definitely noticeable for the first three minutes and 30 seconds. I think 
the was bigger it though? news. I have to be honest. I didn't even notice it. That may be my fault. Full disclosure, I sort of cut it close, got to the game a little later, got my brunch a little late. I was still settling in when the game started. But then when they started cheering and waving their flags at the third minute and 30 second mark, I was like, oh, they were silent, weren't they? It just sort of dawned on me. I mean, I think, yeah, I think in terms of a protest, when it's only for three minutes and 30 seconds, it's not noticeable in the same way that 33 minutes was. I I think the... It was very clear when they started cheering that uh, this is a big difference from what we were right. seeing in the first three minutes. Which I think is maybe the point, is yeah. to show, like, this is what games can be without us. Yeah, exactly. But I think the the bigger news, um, and this is probably one of the first t- times we've seen this, where the biggest news in relation to the, iron, the protests against the Iron Front ban haven't really come from at Providence Park. Mm-hmm. Um Seattle Sounders fans, uh, the Emerald City supporters, one of their capos, uh, from my understanding, from what I've seen on social media, uh, was ejected from the game for waving an iron front flag. And the entire section walked out at at halftime. Yeah. I mean, talk about an impactful protest. I mean, we've discussed uh, the Timbers Army protests in our previous Iron Front Watch updates that we have uh, on this podcast. But this protest, the Emerald City supporters walking out in the middle of a game, I mean, that got people's attention. And it was really interesting for me. I mean, Jamie, you and I have been living the Iron Front controversy for weeks now. So we've already processed everything that's going on and we fully understand it. But it was interesting seeing a lot of people around the country learning about it for the first time because of what happened in Seattle. I follow a lot of soccer journalists and soccer people on social media and seeing them express, you know, the befuddlement over this fight and asking, why is MLS doing this? Why is this the hill they want to die on? The same conversations, Jamie, you and I had weeks ago. It was really interesting watching other people sort of discover that this was even a thing. So, The Emerald City supporters, I think, have given a new wave to this whole thing. They've breathed new life into this controversy. We should point out there is a meeting this week. We're recording Monday night. This meeting is on Thursday. The supporters groups are going to be meeting with uh, representatives from MLS and... Who knows what that conversation is going to be like. They're not going to be club representatives at this meeting. But I think the hope is that there's some sort of resolution. This is not going away. We keep sort of thinking it's going to fizzle out. And then, boom, it just pops right back up again. Yeah, and I think it'll be interesting to see what comes out of this meeting because I I do think the Timbers Army, they've been saying it on Twitter that they're in talks with the Timbers. They're going to be in talks with MLS. And I think that's sort of dictated the kind of protests they've decided to have uh, since they had the 33 minutes of silence. Mm -hmm. If nothing comes out of this meeting, uh, I I think it'll be interesting to see what the supporters groups of both from the Timbers and Seattle. And we're seeing supporters groups from Minnesota releasing statements, Chicago, Atlanta. There are at least five supporters groups. I think Vancouver, too. At least six supporters groups that I think I've seen fairly actively talking about it on Twitter It'll be yeah. interesting to see what happens uh, if there's renewed um, emphasis on, on this protest if this meeting doesn't go well this week. Yes, the Iron Front watch continues. Stay tuned. <laughs> Let's get back to the soccer a little bit. Let's look ahead. We talked about 
injuries. So let's talk a little bit more about that. The Timbers play the New York Red Bulls on Wednesday at Providence Park. The game will kick off at 7.30 p.m. It's the Timbers' second of five games in 15 days. And they're still going to be dealing with injuries, maybe not quite as much as this weekend. They only had 16 players on the bench uh against dc united this weekend maybe they'll be back up to 16 players on the game day roster maybe they'll be back up to 18 geo said uh after the dc game that brian fernandez and zarek valentine brian fernandez who the timbers have said was out with illness the Mm -hmm. last two games ish he came on against kansas city late uh didn't wasn't in the 18 for dc united and zarek valentine who uh missed the game this weekend because of the birth of his uh, first son should be back Wednesday, uh, or he was hopeful uh, they would be back Wednesday. And Sebastian Blanco, who's been dealing with what was first reported as a calf strain, then a lower leg injury, and now has missed two <laughs> games. Uh, Savresi said uh, he would see, essentially, whether he would be back. He didn't give any indication on whether Blanco would be back for sure. Mm. <laughs> I think there's a lot of questions coming out about the injuries in general, just sort of the fact that Timbers haven't been very specific. But I I think the biggest one we saw on Twitter and and sort of the rumor mill going around now is is just what is up with Brian Fernandez? I I mean, the Timbers have said stomach virus for two weeks now. How how do you feel about this? I feel skeptical. I feel like I have a lot of questions. I mean, again, we talked about this on Sunday, so we're going to talk about it again for the benefit of the podcast. I guess it's worth maybe looking at the timeline a little bit. So he has a stomach virus. I, in my experience, those last like what, 48 hours. So Saturday, September 7th, he has a stomach virus. He started on the bench. He only played for 30 minutes against Sporting Kansas City. Later that week, he was on social media mowing his lawn and doing yard work. Friday, uh, before the game against DC United, I guess you got an update from Gio, and Fernandez might still be dealing with this. Is that the warning that you got going into Sunday? Yeah, essentially, um, what I heard from the team was that he was dealing with um, residual effects from the stomach virus, and <laughs> it sounded, based on what I'd heard at that point, that uh, he would likely be available, but may- maybe wouldn't start. It wasn't. It wasn't clear, but there was no indication that he would be out of the eighteen at that point. Okay, so he has residual effects from his stomach virus. And then Sunday, the day of the game, and Jamie, I think this is the key, and I mentioned this to you. I saw Brian Fernandez walk into the stadium through the player's entrance with his family. He was in street clothes. He was wearing jeans, a bomber jacket, a baseball cap. It was definitely him. I know what he looks like. And I said this to you. I'm going to repeat it now. If you are ill, if you're not feeling well, are you going to go to a crowded public place for three hours to watch a soccer game? Or are you just going to stay at home because you're not feeling well? It doesn't make any sense to me at all. I'm not going to describe for people what a stomach virus does to you. We've all had one. If you're not feeling well because of a stomach virus, you stay home. So I'm a little confused by this whole situation. In last podcast, we talked about Larry Smabiala and how there wasn't a lot of clarity about what was going on with him, and we were kind of wondering what was going on, and now this is another example of something where 
I just don't know what to make of what the Timbers are telling us and what we're seeing. What do you think, Jamie? Am I being a little conspiracy theory-ish <laughs> or is it weird that he's sick but he went to the game on Sunday? So I'm going to I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit and then um I'll I'll get to my point, but <laughs> okay. I, I I think that there's an element of this because it hasn't come out clearly where the rumors are just flying and it's very it is possible he he is sick in some way um that maybe him feeling sick is not something that precludes him from going to a normal office job or leaving the house but precludes him from going on the field and running around for 90 minutes i I mean Mm. there is something different about playing professional soccer versus what we have to do when we're feeling a little bit ill and force ourselves to get up and go to work anyways. Um, what are you saying, Jamie, that our jobs are not as demanding? <laughs> I'm saying that I can work in bed when I'm sick and not see anyone for a full day. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's don't, that element. Don't tell our bosses that, though. <laughs> um, the other element of it is that the Timbers play Wednesday. And so if for yeah. whatever reason the Timbers felt that Brian Fernandez was not 100% this weekend, and they just didn't want to risk anything further, him getting, it's raining outside, him getting even more sick and not being able to play Wednesday, that they may have just said, you know what, just sit this one out, come out Wednesday, be at 100%. So I, I just, to play devil's advocate, I don't want to get too far down conspiracy theories, because I've heard a lot of things on Twitter in the last uh, few days, and I am a little bit concerned that, uh, there's the rumor mill is, is just uh, creating some things that, if true, would be major scandals. But if more likely not true, uh, you, th- we shouldn't be spreading those types of rumors. And uh, because we shouldn't be spreading those, I don't know what you're referring to, but I'm going <laughs> to ask you off pod because yeah. I don't want to be part of spreading the rumors. But now I am deeply curious <laughs> what you're talking about. <laughs> well, I just I just think that everyone is speculating right now because it is weird. And, and that yeah. and that comes down to, I think, my other point, which is it's just weird how this has sort of come out. It's a last minute thing. It's not, hey, we're going to tell you that Brian's still feeling a little bit under, but um, here's, here's what's going on. And, and, you know, we might not push him this weekend. I, I just think if there was more clarity going into the midweek press conference of what was going on with every player on the roster, what their timeline looked like, what their actual injury was, as opposed to maybe a lower leg injury, we actually talk about the body <laughs> part in which that is injured, there would be less speculation. And, and so yeah. I, I think the Timbers have opened themselves up to a little bit of speculation right now. And Fernandez is obviously a very important player. So when he's not in there, Fans are going to care about it. And I, I do miss um, what we've seen in the past where we actually get legitimate timelines. We're not asking about uh, Larry Smobiala every week because we know he's out for X amount of weeks. So we'll follow up when we hit that mark. Uh, as opposed to now where every single game we're saying, well, who's available because we're not getting any answer. Yeah, and I think I think your point is well taken that, you know, even if he was just... 99% recovered that 1% maybe they leave him out because of the five games in 15 days stretch but why not just say it's a precautionary thing and everyone knows what precautionary means it means hey this isn't a big deal but we're doing something just to be careful I think if they just said you know it's precautionary that would be the end of it not a big deal but this notion that he's had a stomach virus for like two weeks is just uh, 
not the best uh, messaging around this, I guess. Um, and teams do it all the time. I mean, just say, you know, precautionary thing, Brian is going to be back. That would be the end of it. This idea that he's had a stomach virus is not going to sit right with fans. It is going to lead to conspiracy theories and the rumors that I'm going to follow up with you on to see what people are saying. Um, so, yeah, I, I just wish they would have just sort of be a little bit more clear about that. Yeah. I think on the other element of this is whether he's back Wednesday and, and whether uh, Sebastian Blanco's back as well, whether Eric Valentin's back. Um, how, how They need Blanco back. Yeah. I'm just going to say that. They need him back, desperately. Um, I mean, and what, do you think they need him back over, you know, more than any other player? Or what do you think they, to make you comfortable going into Wednesday's game, well, what do you think they need to have out there? I think Sebastian Blanco is the most important player to have back because if like we've talked about this on previous podcasts I think that the construction of this roster is a few really good players and then a bunch of not really good players and I think that Sebastian Blanco is one of the most irreplaceable most indispensable players on the team he can slot into a bunch of different roles, what he gives you on both sides of the ball, in the attack and tracking back in defense, in possession, his shooting, his passing. He's such a threat in so many ways. I think he's the single most important player to have back. And in previous stretches where the Timbers have played five games in 15 days, I think Sebastian Blanco played every game. He's he doesn't need breaks, apparently, or they don't give him any. So having him back for this sort of stretch could be really crucial. I think having Larry Smabiala back would be important. But at this point, we talked about this in the last podcast. We don't really know what's going on with him. But given the radio silence that we've gotten, I don't think he's anywhere near being back. So I'm not even considering that possibility. I think that Mabial might be getting closer based on what I've heard, but I don't think he's going to be ready for Wednesday. I I think that is something we may want to follow up heading into Minnesota on Sunday, just based on the fact that he is making progress. He was on the field this week doing at least uh, some things. So he, Mm -hmm. he has made a little bit of progress. That's good for the Timbers. Getting Blanco back, Savras, he sort of put it as a maybe, which doesn't feel great going into Wednesday, I think is really important. I think it's especially important because I don't know that Diego Valeri can go Wednesday. Because if Diego Valeri goes Wednesday, I don't see him necessarily then going uh, Sunday against Minnesota again. I don't think he's a player that goes three straight games or definitely five straight games in in 15 days. And and so without Valeri, they, they really need Blanco to be that player that can come in and take over Valeri's role. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I agree with you that Blanco's probably the player they need back the most. I think given how the attack has been and what we just talked about, it would be really great to get both Blanco and Fernandez out there. Yeah. And if they can't get these players back on the field, I am really concerned about how they're going to do against the Red Bulls. The Red Bulls have been struggling lately, but if the Timbers are dealing with short rest and they're, they don't have, they're dealing with injuries or dealing with short rest. I, I, I just think it's going to be really tough for them to overcome that. Um, if not Wednesday going forward in the stretch, because it's not going to get easier as the sort of those minutes build up without the time to, to recover. Yeah. I'm waiting with bated breath for, uh, when you talk to Gio and get an update on all these injuries and absences. Um, let's look ahead briefly to Minnesota on Sunday after the Timbers play Wednesday, they'll host Minnesota Sunday at 1 PM. 
Uh, the Timbers already lost twice to Minnesota this year, but once in the U.S. Open Cup, once in MLS play. Those games were essentially back-to-back, I think, uh, Sunday. Wednesday, Minnesota will be playing on full rest. Um, unlike the Timbers, they don't have a midweek game. That could impact the game. Do you have any expectations coming out of those other Minnesota games on how uh, this one might play out? Not really. I think I just hope that Giovanni Severese will learn something from those previous two games. One was in the MLS regular season. One was in the Open Cup. I want to give a shout out. Stu asked a question about why Giovanni Savarese hasn't changed uh, the formation of the team this season. We talked about that two podcasts ago, so the one before last. So I'm not going to repeat that discussion. Stu, go back and check that episode out. But I would like to see Obobese and Fernandez on the field together. I think that can really be a key for the Timbers in this game. You know, whether they change formations or not, I don't think they're going to for all the reasons that you pointed out, Jamie, two podcasts ago. But I do think they need to find a way to get those players working off of each other. And I think that's when the attack has looked the best. I think playing through a Bobasi is really important. I don't want to see the Timbers cross the ball 39 times in that game. But yeah, I mean, that that sort of applies for both the Red Bulls and Minnesota. Um but yeah. Yeah, I think that the Timbers formation wise have, you know, sort of tweaked it recently with the injuries, um, but they haven't really had a wholesale change like you mentioned. Um, I'm not sure that we will see one of those. Um, but in, in terms of the Red Bulls this week and, and then Minnesota uh, on Sunday, uh, Minnesota is a really good team. Uh, so I, I think that that's going to be a party game for the Timbers. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, they're a Western conference opponent. I think of the two games, it's a more important game this week and that could dictate how they approach the Red Bulls. But mm-hmm. at the same time, everything's important for the Timbers right now. They're in seventh place in the West with five games left. And, uh, they are now six points out of second place. That, that is a much more of a gap than they wanted. And, and had they got a better result against DC, um, it would have been a bit closer, but it's still a close race. And, and so every game's important, but that Minnesota game is more important. So how they manage this week is going to be really big for them. Yes, I, I agree. I think I wonder if uh, maybe the Timbers just want to go through the playoffs on the road because <laughs> you're allowed to not have possession of the ball as an away team. <laughs> maybe it would actually be better for them because they haven't really been playing well at home. <laughs> They've lost four times at home this season, you looked up the stat, so credit to you, but that's the first time they've lost four games at home since 2012, which was not a great season (laughs) for the Timbers. (laughs) So maybe they want to go through the playoffs on the road. Maybe this is all part of the Giovanni Savarese master plan. So (laughs) I don't think so, but, you know, why not have a positive conspiracy theory? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Counterattack all day. Yeah, uh, exactly. Steve Clark can Sit start in. talking about the road dogs again. Yeah, that, <laughs> that that's the conspiracy theory that I uh, I'm gonna stick. Just with. throwing it out there. Yeah. All right, moving on from cons- conspiracy theories. I, I hope. Um, let's go to hot takes, uh, which maybe are a form of conspiracy theories. I don't know. <laughs> um, I'll go first because it's Timbers related and it, it comes directly from this game. One thing that was I, I think um, notable. Uh, heading into this game was that the Timbers only had 16 players on their game day roster, despite the fact that Dairon Espria was healthy for this game. And 
Giovanni Sarresti said after the game it was a coach's decision. He wouldn't elaborate, but I, I think it's very clear that Espria was left off the game day roster because of the incident that occurred in the Kansas City game. We talked about it last week, but Espria was subbed off in the 70th minute when the Timbers were still down two goals and really needed, or still down a goal and really needed to find a goal quickly. Uh, he took a long time to come off the field. And then when he finally got off the field, he didn't shake Savaresi's hand. Savaresi kind of gave him a shove in the shoulder. It clearly wasn't a good look. And it follows it up, and he's not he can't even make the game day roster. I think the Timbers have given Espria a really long leash during his time here. He was sent alone in his second year here after having attitude issues. And that was very clear. They sent him alone because he wasn't being the guy in the locker room wasn't um, accepting his role in the team in the way they wanted him to. They brought him back. Uh, when they brought him back, they said he changed his attitude, that he really wanted to be here. He recognized that he w- wanted to do whatever he could to be in Portland. And it seems almost like we've come full circle again. Uh, we see him finally getting a start, a player that really wouldn't have been on the field had the Timbers not been dealing with numerous injuries. But he gets his opportunity and then when he's taken off for Brian Fernandez, the Timbers' leading scorer, he pouts about it. And I think this is going to be my hot take because, you know, I was wrong once before. When, when he was sent on long before, I said, we're never going to see a spree again. Uh, so this, <laughs> this feels like a hot take because it's happened before and it did not go the way I expected. But I don't see a spree playing another game for the Timbers. I, I think they've given him a wow. long leash. They've given him multiple opportunities I, I just think at some point they have to basically say, yeah, that's it. Um, you haven't uh, taken the opportunities we've given you. You haven't had the right mentality, and uh, we don't need that on this team. So so you're saying he's played his last game in a Timbers uniform. That's what I think. Um, oh, wow. Watch me be wrong on Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> well, that take is definitely hot. Yes. Um you know, maybe it'll spur some new conspiracy theories that I look forward to reading about on Twitter in the RCTID hashtag. It's kind of, we talked about this last week. It's difficult to see what his role is going to be on this team going forward. Giovanni Savarese has seemed to have such an affinity for this player that no one else on the planet seemingly thought should have been starting last year. And... Yeah, I mean, when the Timbers sent him on loan, I think it was to Columbia. Yeah. Millionaros, I think was the club name. Great club name. After he came back, they said he realized what he had in Portland, that he was appreciative now, and um, he wanted to find a way back to Portland. And I think you're right. I think that the, you know, turning over a new leaf has, uh, has faded away. And that appreciation has maybe faded away a little bit. It'll be interesting to see what happens with all these injuries. You know, Espria wasn't on the game day roster. Neither was Foster Langsdorf. Savarese doesn't listen to the podcast because I I distinctly said that Foster Langsdorf should get some minutes. But yeah, I mean, if he can't even make the game day roster when they don't even have 18 players, that's not a great sign. So. Yeah, I- Foster's another conversation, but he at least is playing with T2. They're not, there's no, you know, disciplinary element uh, with him. But, right, uh, for sure. Someday we yeah, can do so we can't di- put them in the same boat. And I, yeah. I didn't mean to do that. I probably just sparked more conspiracy theories. <laughs> I apologize. Let me retract that. All right, Kaylin, <laughs> what is your hot take? Okay, so I'm going to 
ease us into Thorns talk a little bit. And I'm going to talk about the uh, halftime entertainment that we had for the Thorns game against North Carolina. For anyone who has been under a rock for the past week, at halftime of the game at Providence Park, there was a ceremony where military enlistees were sworn in and the enlistees had to take an oath of enlistment where they pledged to, quote, obey the orders of the President of the United States, end quote. As you might expect, fans in the stadium booed for that part of it because the President is Donald Trump. And just to be clear, the fans did applaud for the enlistees after they were sworn in. They generally applauded these people uh, throughout the ceremony. They just booed that specific part of the oath. And I think that, you know, the booing certainly got some attention. Um, Right-wing media has really taken the story and run with it. But I think the point is that a soccer game is just not the appropriate venue for something like this. I mean, enlisting in the military is a very significant life decision. There should be a lot of gravity to that moment. I don't think it's halftime entertainment at a sporting event. And I don't think it's really a surprise that people booed because a soccer game is booing and cheering the entire time. That is all that is happening in the sands during a sporting event. So, of course, that's how the crowd responded to what was happening at halftime. To be clear, the Thorns are not the only soccer team that has done this. DC United had a swearing-in before a game in August. Fans also booed at the exact same part of that ceremony. Similar ceremonies have been held at FC Dallas games and LA Galaxy games this year. I think in the NFL, this is a pretty common thing, actually. You know, whether it's common or not, I just don't think it's something that belongs at a soccer game. I think it felt really awkward. You know, I don't know how you felt, Jamie. I think for me, it just felt tense and awkward, the atmosphere. It just didn't feel right. It just didn't feel like this should have been happening You know, there were people who said it was inappropriate that there was booing on 9-11. I don't recall 9-11 specifically being brought up, that this was like a special thing for 9-11. From what I was told by the Timbers, this was part of a group sales push, the ceremony. So, I mean, it was an effort to make money. It wasn't like a special altruistic way to recognize 9-11. And I think, you know, if if you're going to honor 9-11... You know, have first responders, firefighters, police officers, that sort of thing. So, you know, I just think that with all the Iron Front stuff that has been happening, with the discussion about what is and is not political at soccer games, I think it's best just to avoid this because the booing suddenly made it political. It suddenly made it about Donald Trump and, you know, not about anything else. You know, I I asked Mark Abbott from MLS specifically about these military displays because um, they've happened at, like I said, several MLS games. He defended it and, you know, I quoted him in an article I did for Yahoo Sports. So, you know, MLS's stance is that these swearing-in ceremonies are fine, but every club has their own choice to make. And I think with everything else that is going on, with all the discussion of politics, 
it's best to avoid this. Let's go back to seeing random fans try to kick the ball from halfway down the field. I always find that pretty entertaining. I want to try it one day. But yeah, I just, you know, I just didn't think that was the right venue for it. Not that, you know, these people shouldn't be recognized as making an important decision and, you know, they shouldn't be respected and all that. I just think it was more about the venue wasn't the right venue. That's just my personal opinion. I know some people disagree. They're free to disagree. Um, But yeah, that's my take. I think that, I I mean, from my understanding, it was a planned event before the season for the 9-11 game. That's what I was uh, told when asked about when it was decided. Um, Yes, it it was decided before the season, before before, they knew about the Siren Front stuff. Yeah, and they they had it coincide with 9-11 game, which, um, as you said, you know, this isn't necessarily a, a, a time in which you usually see the military honored so much as first responders. Um, but I, I do think the point that I, I think you hit on, which was immediately apparent to me, was given all the controversy about politics in uh, MLS right now and, and translating to the NWSL because the Timbers have organization has decided to hold that ban on political imagery and against the Iron Front symbol at NWSL games as well this was probably the not not the right moment to have this um whether yeah. or not it's ever the right moment I think that's a, a fair question but I, I think given the backdrop it, it was especially surprising to see because I I think we are in a very polarized political environment right now and anything that's going to bring up the pl- president of the United States is going to immediately elicit a response and, and is immediately going to be seen as political and when fans are fighting to be able to bring Iron Front flags to games, be able uh, to have MLS change the verbiage so they're not having a vague ban on political imagery. To see the Timbers come out and have a ceremony like this with that backdrop uh, was what I, I think surprised me the most. Mm-hmm. I also heard the same thing, that this was something that was planned before the season. Like I said, it was part of a group sales push. But that doesn't mean they couldn't have changed course. I mean... The Iron Front thing in the last few weeks has really uh, raised the decibel level in terms of this controversy. It it was poorly received, and I think, um, you know, just knowing the passionate fans that Portland has, I I think it was a little predictable that, you know, when the line uh, was said about obeying the President of the United States, that that was going to elicit booze, and it was just sort of uncomfortable um, because, you know, you feel bad for the people being sworn in, but you sort of understand why the fans are booing and, you know, wanting to express themselves. And I, th- I think you make a valid point that maybe at a different time, maybe that wouldn't have been the issue that it is now. But the point is, it, it was an issue now. So um, I have a feeling that the Thorns aren't going to be doing that again anytime soon, though. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, what happened on the field and what the Thorns definitely don't want to do again anytime soon. Um, Our predictions were just wrong. Uh, I don't know that it's even useful to go through. I thought the Thorns would win 3-2 with a Haran brace, which is just so far from where the Thorns are at right now. Um, You thought a 2-2 draw uh, with a Portland own goal. Um, (laughs) I do think that was sort of an own game, like... Yeah, and just like played them, <laughs> played themselves, and just like, yeah, an own goal I think fits the spirit a little bit, but 
it's not bad enough. Yeah, it needs it, to be like a million <laughs> times worse. Yeah, and I, I think I said, wow, that would be a brutal game. And uh, <laughs> uh, when you made that prediction, so I was wrong. Yeah. Uh, what a brutal game looks like is the Thorns losing 6 nothing to North Carolina. They're... Uh, most lopsided loss in the history of the club. This was embarrassing. We got a lot of versions of this question. I'll pick the <laughs> one that is family friendly enough to say on the show. Um, but Kevin asks, what the frick was that? Yeah. We were sitting next to each other during the game. And I think I speak for both of us when I say we were in disbelief of what we were witnessing. Um, it was a weird experience sitting there watching that game because the Thorns are not a 6-0 loss bad team. Like, it just sort of came out of nowhere. But it was stunning to see how much the Thorns' defense just looked to be in shambles. I mean, they constantly looked like they were trying to scramble and catch up and get back in position. It didn't matter which side that the Courage attacked down. We had... Two goals came from crosses on the right side. One came from a cross on the left side. One was a long-range strike. One was a close-range chip. I mean, the Courage just ran a clinic on the Thorns, and the Thorns could do nothing to stop it. I mean, it was kind of impressive (laughs) Um, on both sides. I mean, impressively good from the Courage. And the Thorns, I've, I've never seen them play that poorly before. But I, I, I do want to give the Courage some credit. I mean, I think one of the talking points this season was that the Courage didn't look as good as they did last season. They haven't looked as dominant. But then they drop six goals on the Thorns, and they turn around, and then immediately drop another six goals on the Orlando Pride in a 6-1 to one win over the weekend. So I think it's safe to say that the Courage are hitting their stride. With the Thorns... I don't really know what to make of it. They just sort of looked out of sorts. I think that their energy level from the get-go didn't match North Carolina's. But as soon as the courage went up, like it was like the head started to drop and the Thorns just sort of gave up. I I don't really know. What do you think, Jamie? Yeah, I I think the courage are showing that they are the best team in the NWSL. I, I think they put in a really good performance. They are right now it looks very likely that they're going to both win the NWSL Shield and win the championship just like they did last year so I agree with you let's give the courage a little bit of credit for this game because it wasn't if the Thorns had been playing this performance against Houston it it might not have ended up being 6-0 would be the outcome but yeah the Thorns were terrible Uh, (laughs) their inability to defend basic crosses was they they should play against the Timbers because the Timbers <laughs> really need a team that can't defend crosses like the Thorns could um, couldn't do at this game. It it just didn't look like we were watching professional soccer and especially a team that's been as good as the Thorns. I mean, they were a step slow stepping to the players on a cross, um, trying to even in, in any way defend crosses. I, I thought that was the most embarrassing part of the defensive performance. Um, but I mean, also there was another goal where they allowed, I think, Dabina just to dribble straight up the field, uh, tap the ball off to Lynn Williams, who was wide open and just get an easy uh, goal to put away. Uh, so it wasn't all about the crosses. Um, the defense just didn't play like, uh, I think, a professional team. 
Um, yeah. And I absolutely agree with you that the Thorns gave up after they, it seemingly after they allowed the first goal. Uh, they scored, they allowed three goals, I think, in a nine-minute span. And by then the game was over. They had mm-hmm. a few very, very brief spurts uh, of looking like maybe they were going to recover or at least uh, not allow North Carolina to keep uh, keep increasing their goal total. But those were really short-lived. Um, <laughs> I just, it's, it's hard to look at that game. And given how good the Thorns have been, given how good they've been this season, historically, what players are, were on the field for that game, uh, the yeah. fact that Christine Sinclair, Tobin Heath, Lindsey Horan were on the field for that game. And, and to think that they lost the way they did, um, <laughs> I don't know yeah. what happened. Yeah, it's tough to make sense of. And I think, you know, speaking of players they had on the field, one player they did not have on the field was Emily Sonnet. And I think, you know, to your point, you mentioned Dubinia just being allowed to dribble up the field without any sort of challenge from the Thorns. I don't think that not having Emily Sonnet changed the game. I certainly don't think that the Thorns lost 6-0 to because they didn't have Emily Sonnet. What I will say is that why was Emily Sonnet not here? It's because she was making tactical fouls when the Royals were getting opportunities to get on breakaways. She was making the choice to try to stop those. And I think the Thorns needed a lot more tactical professional fouls they needed to put more effort in to disrupt what the courage were doing because the thorns gave the courage so much space i mean just watch the highlights like the courage were not being closed in on or shut down i mean they had all the space they needed to score six goals and i looked up the stats because i was curious the thorns committed seven fouls which is just like a normal game. And this was not a normal game. The Thorns were being demolished. They needed to get a little more grit. Get I mean, Jurgen Klinsmann once said, I think that he thought the U.S. men's national team needed to be more nasty or something. And, you know, we laugh at Jurgen Klinsmann and uh, his record as a coach, but the Thorns needed to be a little more nasty. They just gave so much time and space to the courage. And I think they needed a player like Sonnet who's going to get in and, you know, fly into tackles, do a better job on crosses, be aggressive. I think that was one of the things, at least. I mean, there were a lot of things missing, but that physicality, that bite, that was definitely missing on Wednesday. Yeah, I think in terms of missing Sonnet, like you said, it wouldn't have changed the game. I think, unfortunately, Catherine Reynolds looked like she hadn't played in a while. Um, I I think it was maybe the first or second goal where it was just very clear. She was very slow to step to, um, I believe it was Lynn Williams at that moment. She just looked like, she was rusty and and that was unfortunate for the thorns when everyone else it seemed like was having a bad game too. So yeah, I think Sonnet maybe would have helped. I I don't think that would have been the difference in the game by any means. I I think another player that if you had them at their top form could have helped in a game like this is Lindsay Horan, because you look at last year and the work, not only the goals she scored when she won um, NWS MVP last year, but the work she did in the midfield, her ability to win duels, her ability to um, sort of control the midfield and, and to some degree make up um, for the absence of Amandine Henri, which I, I still think is another element in the midfield that the Thorns haven't replaced and losing Gabby Seiler this year I, mm-hmm. is yeah. uh, far from ideal from them. 
But Haran last year was able to, just by being so dominant in the midfield, was almost able to mask the fact that uh, they didn't have an Amandine Henri next to her anymore. I, I feel like she's been a little bit un- invisible this year. Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree. This has not been the Lindsay Haran that we saw last year. I also think, you know, it is hard to expect her to have another season like she did last year because... I mean, look, that was the best season she's ever had. I mean, I can't say I watched her closely at PSG, but she was playing a different position when she was with PSG anyway. Um, But that was, I mean, 2018 was her best season ever. So it's hard to expect her to be able to match that. But I do agree that she has been less effective. And I think, you know, part of it is, you know, the sort of, telepathic ability to be in the right place at the right time last year hasn't been there this year. And I do wonder how much, you know, the World Cup, the Victory Tour, how disruptive that may have been for her, you know, pulling her away from the team, preventing her from building as much chemistry as she had with the team last year. I wonder if that's part of it. I wonder if, you know, having a focus on the World Cup and the national team could be a factor. Because I do think that, you know, last year she always seems to be able to make the perfect run or thread the perfect pass or get stuck in and win the ball in the perfect moment. And she just hasn't been able to do that this year. And I don't know if it, if it's a coincidence that at the World Cup – we saw Lindsey Horan lose her starting spot to Samantha Mewis, which I have to say, I follow the U.S. women's national team really closely, and that was really unexpected because Jill Ellis seemed to really believe that Lindsey Horan was a key starter. She didn't really seem to rate Samantha Mewis that much, and then all of a sudden in France, Samantha Mewis is starting games that you would have thought Lindsey Horan would be starting. So I also have to think that there has been a dip in form. And I mean, that's normal. It happens to soccer players. There's an ebb and a flow. Players can be in great form at one time and not as good form at another time. And that doesn't mean they're not a good player anymore. It just means that, you know, for whatever reason, it's just not all coming together at that moment. But I think, you know, it could be a combination of those factors, a dip in form, lack of time with the thorns, you know, having a pretty disruptive season, and just maybe the players around her also not playing as well themselves. I mean, there are a lot of factors. I think it's hard to pinpoint just one, though. Yeah, I think you, you brought up, you know, the players around her. And I, I think we're seeing Christine Sinclair score goals, I think, in this specific game. <laughs> um uh, against North Carolina, she, along with everyone, was just wasn't good. Um, <laughs> but we're seeing her, you know, come back from the World Cup score goals. I don't think we've seen enough out of Tobin Heath. I think specifically with the U.S. players, it's tough because they really have been in and out. And I think from a chemistry standpoint, losing the World Cup players and then having these international breaks and having the U.S. players miss that extra game it just hasn't helped in terms of the Thorns trying to build up to where they want to be at this point in the season. Um, Jeff asked at this point, would we be better off with seeing the world cup replacement players starting? I don't think so. I I, I still think you want your most talented players on the field, but what the thorns need is is some time to practice. And and maybe this is a good opportunity because they have a week 
and uh, a half between games to really get those players back in, develop the chemistry. But I, I think that the chemistry hasn't been there and you just haven't seen the best form from the Thorns top players. And I, I think part of that is maybe coming back after putting all your focus in on the World Cup and, and then trying to keep that same level up for the, the club season as well. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we should overreact to this game and decide that the Thorns don't have the best players in the world because they do. I mean, to Jeff's question, essentially what he's asking is if players like Tobin Heath and Lindsay Horan shouldn't be starting. And the answer is no. Of, of course you should not be having those players on the bench. Like I said, I think they are the best players in the world. So I think it's important to keep in mind that the World Cup replacement players – we're playing against World Cup replacement players. This is a different league now. We've talked about it a lot, that you need to sort of compartmentalize the NWSL season because of these different phases and because of the different looks on the teams. And I think the Thorns have better depth than anyone else. And that played to the Thorns' advantage during the World Cup. I think their World Cup replacement players are probably better than a lot of World Cup replacement players from other teams around the league. I don't think that means that you want those players playing against every NWSL team's A-team. And I think that the World Cup replacement players who did really well have preserved their spots. I mean, I think that's how Midge Purse has worked her way into a starting position now, is that she played really well during the World Cup. So... Yes, it was a terrible game, and it's still sort of difficult to wrap my head around, but it doesn't mean that the Thorns don't have great players. It doesn't mean that Tobin Heath isn't a great player. I would just caution against overreacting to this game. Um, But I think we have a question from Katie that this sort of leads into, Jamie. Was this game an aberration or a reason to be worried about the end of the season stretch? What do you think? What do you, what do you have for Katie? I think it's a little of both. I think this was an aberration. I mean, you you by the, the fact that this was the most lopsided loss that the Thorns have ever had, I, I mean, that's clearly an aberration. I think the Thorns are better than this. I think they're capable of recovering. I think it was a wake-up call that the Thorns just might not be on North Carolina's level. I don't think yeah. they're 6-0 to zero worse than North Carolina, but... I'm also, coming out of this game, not at all confident that the Thorns are going to beat North Carolina if they face them in the playoffs. Uh, mm-hmm. Right now, I would put my money on North Carolina after after seeing this game and the way that North Carolina really is playing. I mean, we talked about World Cup and chemistry and things like that. That has not seemed to phase North Carolina at all. Um, <laughs> I, I think the other element is that I, I think the Thorns can rebound. I think they are a better team than this. And when they face weaker teams, which every other team is going to be weaker than North Carolina, they can do better, Mm -hmm. but there is an element of confidence coming out of this. I I mean, the thorns have to make sure in the week and a half they have off that they sort of refocus. They don't let this um, sort of have them spiral downwards because of one bad performance. And so, yeah, I think it's an aberration, but I definitely have a little bit less confidence going into the rest of the season than I did before this game. Yeah, I think Katie's question is a good one, but it's one we can't really answer until the end of the season. I mean, the thing about aberrations is that you don't know they're aberrations until a bunch of time has passed, and then you can look back. So I think with the Thorns, 
I don't know what to make of this. I think with North Carolina, it's not an aberration. I think this 6-0 win over the Thorns combined with their next result, which was a 6-1 win over the Orlando Pride, I think that sort of proves that the Courage are closer to the team they were last season than we thought they were for a lot of this season. And with with North Carolina, it sort of fits into this larger picture of what we have thought about the team already, and we're able to look at what happened and say, okay, so it turns out that North Carolina is still a really, really good team. Whereas with the Thorns, this doesn't really fit into a lot It doesn't really fit into a picture that we have of this team. I mean, I talked in the last podcast about how I felt that the Thorns defense looked error prone, and I was concerned about that, and we definitely saw that against North Carolina. I thought it was the same sort of sloppiness and just, um, you know, not being precise, not being disciplined, not being organized. So in that sense, it fits in. But when I said that in the last podcast, I was not thinking that the Thorns defense was so bad that they could give up six goals in a game. So that feels a little too much. Um, So, yeah, it's just sort of hard to wrap our minds around this and try to fit it in with a narrative. I mean, it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. We'll have to wait until the season is over, and then Katie will will tell you if it was an aberration or not. Well, I guess going into Saturday's game against Houston, um, that's 7.30 p.m. at Providence Park. That That's a team where the Thorns beat, uh, I believe, 5-0 earlier this season. Houston did earn a win against Utah um, over the weekend, but they're going to play North Carolina this week before playing Portland on short rest. I, I mean, I think this is a chance for the Thorns to rebound. Um, and I, I guess to some degree, whether you th- think that last game's an aberration or not, maybe determines, or maybe not, determines what you think is going to happen in this game. Uh, but do you think that we're going to see uh, re-energized Thorns, uh, Thorns that are ready to come out and get a rebound win against Houston? Gosh, I hope so. If we don't, <laughs> if we don't, then like the season is over. Just call it. I mean, they should be chomping at the bit to prove that it was an aberration, that that's not the team that they are, that, you know, it was just a blip. It's one of those things. Um, because, I mean, after the game, they seemed really humiliated by that result. I mean, with good reason. It was the worst loss in club history. But they, they just seemed so embarrassed by it that they should be so motivated to move on from this and to get a good result. And look, I think the Dash aren't a good team. I don't think they've ever (laughs) been good in the team's history, quite frankly. So I think that the Thorns should win. It's not as if the Dash are not capable of getting results. They just beat the Utah Royals this weekend, which I think was pretty much a surprise to um, everyone who follows the league. I I don't really think people were expecting that. So it's not as if the Dash can't get good results. But I absolutely think the Thorns should win and feel incredibly motivated by the 6-0 loss. They need to prove to people and remind them what kind of team that the Thorns are. Yeah, I think they're lucky with the schedule that they're facing Houston and maybe not Chicago. It it should be a very clear game where let's just go out there and prove that we can rebound and we're better than this. And it should be against a team where that shouldn't be too hard if they play like they can play. So anything less than a win against Houston, I'm not feeling great. If if there's another 
uh, game, anything like the North Carolina game. Um, yeah, I, I, like you said, call the season now. Uh, <laughs> I think this is an opportunity for them to quickly, as quickly as possible, uh, put this courage loss behind them. Uh, but that leads into predictions uh, and what we think is going to happen. Before we start with the Thorns, let's start with the games in order as they're going to happen. Let's start with Wednesday's match between the Timbers and the New York Red Bulls. What do you think? So I'm going to, I'm still a little down on the Timbers. Shocker. After that conversation we just had for an hour. But I'm going to say a 1 1 draw. Not terrible, but a draw. And I'm going to say Paredes is going to get a goal. So I am also still down on the Timbers, but I'm also really down on uh, the Red Bulls' recent form and mm. uh, the fact that they're an Eastern Conference team that's coming. I, I mean, I think they were already up in Seattle, but has been on the road in, for a while or, or coming down here, having to travel, haven't been playing well. So I am going to say that the Timbers are going to get a win. I, they're going to get a 1-0 win with an Abobasi goal. Um, and that prediction is based much more on my feelings about the Red Bulls right now than my feelings about the Timbers. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, Thorns versus Houston. So um, I, I feel that the Thorns are really going to come out just firing on all cylinders, eager to make up some of that goal differential uh, that that game caused. So I think they're going to have a resounding win at home, 3-0 to zero win, and I think Tobin Heath is going to get both a goal and an assist. I also think it's going to be a decisive win, but I'm going to go 2-0, and I'm going to go with Christine Sinclair, who has been scoring this season, uh, getting a goal. Yeah, she tends to do that. She tends she to tends score to goals. Yeah, so... Not not high level difficulty there, although I don't know coming out of that six zero loss, maybe it is. <laughs> um, Timbers versus Minnesota on Sunday. What do you think? Yeah, so I'm gonna be a little more positive about this one. I don't know why. I think that the Timbers are gonna try harder, I guess, because uh, you know, as you've mentioned, Minnesota is a Western Conference team. This is very important. So I'm gonna say they're gonna get a one to zero win, but it is gonna be a snooze fest because it's going to be a penalty hit goal for Diego Valeri. Well, I'm going to use my side bet to say that Minnesota is going to score their own penalty kick. Uh, mm. So we're both expecting a penalty kick in this game, but I'm going to say that Minnesota wins two to one. I, I think Minnesota is pretty good and I yeah. am not confident what the Timbers are going to look like by the end of this week, given how injuries may limit their rotations. Oh God. Yeah. The, the injuries are going to be a huge factor. Yeah. It's going to, decide a lot but we got to predict now before uh the red bulls so (laughs) we'll see how we do yeah we will see uh let's go into the fantasy update really quick um in our head-to-head league beer city fc that's benjamin in third is in third place sloppy 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 steve is in second place flicking portland ptsc that's mark is in first place but the top three uh players in that league are all tied with a perfect 13-0-0 record it's just point uh, differential that separates them. So really oh, wow. close uh, league. So some good players in our head-to-head league. In our open league, uh, we've seen these teams. Uh, a lot of these teams are the same every week now. It's tra- starting to create some distance. Uh, Wook score more goals. Robert is in third place. Gem City SC. Ryan is in second place. And Portland Tobin FC. That's B is in first place. That is all from us today. You can find us every week on Oregon Live and Stumptown Footy. You can subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. We're Soccer Made in Portland. And until next week, take care.